welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, we are starting a new study series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In this series, we're going to take a look at what is normally referred to as the intertestamental period. This is the 400-plus year period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Now, R.D., Anchored by Truth focuses on demonstrating the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Bible. So why do you think it's important for us to look at the period during which no new books of the Bible were being written? It would seem to be counterintuitive for a program that focuses on the Bible to take time out to focus on a time when books of the Bible weren't being produced. Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. And I think that your question is a very good one. Thank you. I thought it was. So there's a short answer to your question and a long answer. There usually is. So what's the short answer? Well, the short answer is that it's impossible to understand the relationship between the two testaments without knowing something about the period that elapsed in between the preparation of the two different testaments. If we don't understand what occurred historically during the period that elapsed between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, then we're going to miss a lot. You know, a lot of people may not realize that there was a period of about 450 years that separated the writing of the last books of the Old Testament and the preparation of the first books of the New Testament. Because our Bibles are complete today, you can turn one page and you can go from Malachi to Matthew. And a lot of people don't realize that turning that page spans a gap of over 400 years and maybe a span of over 450 years. So if we don't know something about what happened during that 400 to 450 years, our understanding of much of the Gospels and the New Testament will be incomplete. Now, I've named this series that we're going to do on Anchored by Truth, Perfectly Quiet, the Intertestamental Period. This period was quiet in the sense that during that period, God gave no new special revelations to one of his prophets or messengers for them to record that got included in the Bible. But as we will see as this series progresses, that period was also perfect in its duration and perfect in how God was preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus. And what's the long answer? Well, the long answer is for listeners to just keep listening because the long answer is why we're doing this series. Hmm. Well, let's at least do an illustration of what you're thinking about. 
something we're going to learn about as we go through the longer answer. Okay. Well, here's a good example of things that we need to be familiar with in order to have a really solid understanding of the New Testament. The last few books chronologically in the Old Testament are two historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then one of the so-called minor prophets, Malachi. Now, I don't really like the title minor prophets because it makes it sound like those prophets were unimportant, but they weren't. When we talk about minor prophets, we're only talking about the volume of material they left. We're not talking about the importance of the books that they wrote. Well, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi were all written about the middle of the 5th century B.C., somewhere between the years, say, 430 B.C. to 450 B.C. Now, when these books were written, when Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi were written, the Jews were living in their ancestral homeland, but they weren't independent. They were really just a vassal state of the Persian Empire. In other words, they weren't an independent country. They were ruled by the Persians. Well, when the New Testament opens with the arrival of John the Baptist, again, 450 years later, The Jews are still living in their ancestral homeland, but they still weren't a truly independent nation. But now, rather than them being part of the Persian Empire, they were part of the Roman Empire. Now, pretty much everyone is familiar with the name Herod. Just about anybody who's heard the Bible stories, especially about the birth of Jesus, knows a little something about one of the Herods. Herod was actually a family name of a number of successive kings who ruled what the Romans called Judea. Now, although the Herods had actually come from a region outside of Judea that was called Edom, the Herod family had more or less converted to Judaism. So it is correct to think of the Herod, who is featured so prominently in the Gospels, as a Jew. But Herod, even though he was a Jew, largely took his orders from Rome. In other words, the status of the Hebrew homeland hadn't changed during this 450 years just the foreign empire that controlled it. And I suspect you're going to tell us that the change in control was important to the Bible story. Actually, it was very important. And here's a quick example of why. There were a number of ancient empires that one time or another exercised hegemony over Israel. Well, those various empires permitted varying degrees of autonomy to their vassal states. Well, under the Romans, the Jews actually did have a fair amount of latitude in the control of their daily affairs. But, as was true throughout their empire, there were certain decisions that the Romans reserved entirely for themselves. And one of those areas had to do with censuses and taxation. And that's why in Luke chapter 2, Luke notes that Caesar Augustus ordered that a census be taken of the entire Roman world. In order to get accurate counts of their population, people had to return back to their ancestral homes. That meant Joseph had to leave Nazareth, where he lived, and go back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the ancestral home for people, like Joseph, who traced their lineage to David. In doing so, Joseph took his pregnant wife with him. So, God used an edict from a pagan empire as part of his plan to have Jesus, the Messiah, be born in Bethlehem. But it was important in God's planning that the control of Palestine had shifted to an empire that took their censuses in that way. If Caesar Augustus hadn't issued the edict, Mary and Joseph would have been in the wrong place at the time of Jesus' birth. 
there had been no other reason to travel to Bethlehem at that time. Right. But of course, in his providence, God knew exactly what was necessary to fulfill his plans. I mean, God was never in doubt about what it was going to take in order for his plans to come to fruition. But God is not only sovereign over the ends. He knew what he had planned. He knew what his intentions were. He knew what he was going to do. But God is sovereign over both the ends and the means. But the fact that during this intertestamental period, God had shifted control of Palestine from one pagan empire to another is a great illustration of why we need to pay attention to that intertestamental period. You know, even though books of the Bible weren't being actively produced during that time, it doesn't mean that nothing was happening with respect to God's superintendence of history or God directing his plan of salvation to its appointed end. Well, I think that's a good illustration of why we wanted to do this series. As we said earlier, turning the page from Malachi to Matthew crosses a gap of almost 450 years. We do that so easily that it's easy to forget how long a time span that really is. That's more than two centuries longer than the United States has been in existence. Today, we think of events from the 1990s as being old. So, where do you want to go from here? With a caveat. Yikes. We haven't even gotten started, and already you're hedging. Yes, I am. But it's a necessary hedge, and it will get us started on an additional understanding of what was going on during the intertestamental period. First, let's remind everyone that in the Bibles, most commonly used by Protestant denominations, there are 66 books. There are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New. And as we've mentioned a little earlier, the last book of the Old Testament was written by a so-called minor prophet named Malachi. Malachi means messenger of Jehovah or my messenger. And most commentators will date the book of Malachi during the same period in which Ezra and Nehemiah were helping the Hebrew people recover from the Babylonian captivity. As a refresher, After Solomon died, the nation that King David had unified split into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Israel disappeared from the pages of history in 722 BC when it was conquered by the Assyrians. Judah was also conquered about 140 years later, but it was conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians had earlier conquered the Assyrians in 605 BC. However, Unlike the northern kingdom, Judah did not disappear entirely. Even though they spent a period of 70 years away from their homeland, they were ultimately allowed to return by a Persian emperor named Cyrus. Cyrus had conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC. You know, there was a lot of conquering going on in those days. Yes, there was. Well, most of the 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament were written before the period of the Babylonian captivity but a few were written during the captivity or after it. For instance, the major prophetic books of Daniel and Ezekiel were written during the period of the Babylonian captivity. Now, no major prophetic books were written after the captivity, but three of the minor prophets wrote afterwards, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And all three of those books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are all usually regarded as being written in the 5th century B.C., with Malachi typically dated the latest. 
And, in the arrangement of our current Bibles, Malachi is normally placed as the last book of the Old Testament, right? Right. But you just said most of the 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament. So I'm guessing that that is the caveat that you want to discuss. Exactly. I've said 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament because there are seven more books that are often referred to as the Apocrypha that are included in most Bibles used by Catholics or the Orthodox traditions. Those seven books usually include Sirach, Baruch, Wisdom, Judith, Tobit, and First and Second Maccabees. These books are sometimes referred to as deuterocanonical books or books of the second canon. And some lists of the Apocrypha have additional books beyond the ones I just named. So the caveat I'm making is that in those faith traditions that accept the Apocrypha as being canonical, in those faith traditions, they would believe that there were some books that belong in the Bible that were produced during this intertestamental period. For instance, 1st and 2nd Maccabees would have been written about the middle of the 2nd century B.C., So that would be roughly in the middle of this overall period of 450 years that we've been talking about. In other words, there are some groups or faith traditions within Christianity that use different versions of the Bible. And in the versions they use, there are some books that would fall outside the general time periods we've been talking about. So how do we know which version of the Bible is correct? The question of whether or not the Apocrypha are canonical is essentially a historical question. It boils down to what was included in the Hebrew canon around the time of Jesus. Or said slightly differently, what did the Jews regard as their scriptures at the time of Jesus? Or to put it even more bluntly, what did Jesus regard as the scriptures? Now, those faith traditions that accept the Apocrypha as a second canon have reasons that they accept them, and those faith traditions who do not accept the Apocrypha as being canonical have reasons that they do not. The feelings can be quite strong on both sides. So, at a high level, what are some of the reasons they do or do not regard the Apocrypha as being canonical? One of the major points of discussion about whether the Apocrypha are canonical or not is whether or not the Apocrypha were included in the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Jewish scriptures that was widely circulated during the time of Jesus' earthly ministries, and it was also widely circulated during the days of the early church. Now, there are scholars who believe the Apocrypha were included in the Septuagint, and there are scholars who believe that they weren't included in the Septuagint. Another point about whether or not the Apocrypha are considered canonical is how the early church fathers, such as Oregon or Cyril of Jerusalem or Jerome, believed that the Apocrypha were canonical. One of the tests for canonicity is frequently how many and what early church fathers had to say about whether or not a particular book was accepted to be revealed special revelation, whether a particular book was considered to be scripture. And there were, again, opinions by various early church fathers The three that I just mentioned, Oregon, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Jerome, none of them considered the Apocrypha to be canonical. But there were some early church fathers that might have believed the Apocrypha were canonical. But just because these early church fathers did not consider the Apocrypha to be canonical does not mean that they didn't believe the Apocrypha were valuable books, right? Right. Some of the early church fathers held the Apocrypha in high esteem. 
and many of them considered them to be valuable as resources for study. They just did not believe them to be inspired or at the same level of authority as the books that were accepted as canonical. Now, another reason that many scholars do not regard the Apocrypha as being canonical is because there are no direct quotations in the New Testament from any of these deuterocanonical books. Now, some scholars believe that there are allusions to some of the material that's in the Apocrypha. So what you're trying to point out is that the intertestamental gap might be calculated differently by different observers. But does the existence of the Apocrypha affect our basic confidence in the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture? No, and for this reason. Our doctrine of infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration only applies to the original writing. Now, those original writings are sometimes referred to as the autographa. And as far as we know, there are none of the autographa that are extant today. We don't know of any document that we would consider to be an actual original writing from either a prophet or a messenger. So I know that the words autographa and apocrypha are two very similar words, at least in how they sound. And they're not words that we use every day. And frankly, they're going to be unfamiliar words to a large number of people. But they refer to very different things, so it's important to understand what each of them means. The autographa just refers to the original version of any book of the Bible as it was first written by the prophet or messenger under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, even those of us who hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture don't hold that any particular translation or any version of any book is infallible or inerrant, We only hold to inerrancy and infallibility for the very first version as it was given to the prophet, as it was recorded by that prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, because of this view, those of us who hold to inerrancy and infallibility believe that the truly inspired books of the Bible are discovered, they are not determined. In other words, the church does not decide what belongs in the canon. God has decided that. But the church has to discover the books that God intended to be used in the canon. And the church does use criteria for doing that, but we don't have time today to go into those criteria. As I've mentioned, there is a distinction between the autographa and the apocrypha, which is this group of books that we've been talking about that are included in the Bibles of some of the Christian faith traditions. Whether or not the Apocrypha were part of the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish Old Testament, if you will, because that's a historical question, it's a question over whether or not there may be some legitimate disagreement. But that disagreement, no matter which side of the question someone falls on, does not affect the basic principle that the original books as given, the Autographa, what someone decides about the canonicity of the Apocrypha, does not affect the inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy of the original books, those books that were recorded under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In a way, it's like works produced by master artists who lived hundreds of years ago. Art scholars might disagree over the exact list of paintings or artworks that an artist actually produced, but disagreement over a few doesn't affect the authenticity of the genuine works. If there are, say, a hundred works of art that are attributed to the artist, there might be disagreement on, say, ten of those. 
Some art scholars might believe that the artist in question created those ten pieces. Other art scholars might believe the artist did not. But the disagreement over the ten pieces does not affect the authenticity of the other ninety. So a disagreement on the inspiration of the Apocrypha doesn't affect the inspiration of the books that are common to all the different faith traditions or denominations. We can continue to work on the historical research to gain a better understanding of which books were part of the Hebrew canon. But in the meantime, we can still be confident about the inspiration of those where agreement has been reached. Exactly. Now, the primary reason I wanted listeners to be aware of this discussion is, as I have said, to provide a potential caveat to the opinion that I am going to express during this series, that there was a gap of approximately 450 years between the close of the Old Testament canon and the start of the New Testament. Now, for anyone who regards the Apocrypha as being canonical, there would still be a gap. It just wouldn't be a gap of 450 years. It would be a gap of 150 to 200 years. But the observations that we're going to make about the necessity to understand what happened during that gap, whether you consider it to be long or short, the observations that we're going to make about the relevance of that understanding to our understanding of both Testaments, these observations are still going to be valid. No matter which book someone regards as being in the Old Testament canon, you still need to have a good understanding of how the two Testaments relate to one another, and you're not going to have that good understanding if you don't have some awareness of what was going on during the intertestamental period. Okay. Well, after that lengthy caveat, we don't have a lot of time remaining in this first episode of the series. So what would you like to discuss in the limited amount of time we have left? Well, let's start by remembering that the Christian faith is a faith of place and time. What you mean is, is that Christian faith is tied to and expressed through historical events that occurred in places you can locate on a map. And those events happened at times that can be cited on a calendar, regardless of which particular calendar you may be using. The Christian faith certainly has a supernatural dimension. And the Bible is not shy about talking about things we normally don't see, like angels and demons. And the Bible is not shy about talking about places we haven't seen yet, like heaven or New Jerusalem. But the overwhelming majority of the Bible is set in the history of certain people and specific places. Exactly. And because the Lord is the Lord of both place and time, He is always superintending the unfolding of history. And that's what the Lord was doing during the intertestamental period. So, in order to trace the entire history that is relevant to the arrival of Jesus in the place and time where Jesus was born, it's very helpful to understand some of the events of that intertestamental period. So, one of the subjects that we're going to be covering frequently throughout this series is, historically in the Middle East, what was going on during the intertestamental period. Again, we need to remember that the vast majority of the Bible's events are focused around countries that we today label the Mideast. Many of the names that we see in the Bible are still represented in modern counterparts. Israel, Egypt, Syria, Gaza, Jerusalem. All of these and more are places named in the Bible that we can still see on our maps today. Right. The place names are the same, but that doesn't mean that dynamic events did not take place during the intertestamental period that affected those places. They did. There was a lot going on during that 450 years. And what was going on during that 450 years not only applied to who was ruling Palestine, 
but they also applied to the people that were living in Palestine during that time, especially the Jews. You know, it's not too much of a stretch to say that during that 450 years of perfect silence, God was continuing his preparations for the arrival of his anointed one. The term Messiah means the anointed one. So you're saying that during the intertestamental period, God was preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus. And since Jesus was going to arrive in the Mideast, in Bethlehem, we need to trace some of what was going on in and around Israel. Exactly. And when we do, we will see that Jesus arrived exactly on schedule. And the mere fact that there was a period of 450 years between the last inspired book of the Old Testament and the first inspired record of the New Testament did not mean that God's plan had changed or been delayed or had somehow been set back in any way. A gap of 450 years between one event, which was the recording of the last book of the Old Testament, and the recording of the first book of the New Testament, that gap did not affect God's overall plan in any way whatsoever. That's a great lesson, isn't it? 450 years may be a long time to us, but it's not even a drop in the bucket for our eternal God. And while we get concerned when our plans don't pan out in a few days, weeks, or months, God doesn't. When Malachi put his pen down and wrote the words we heard in our opening scripture, God had completed his revelation for that time, but he hadn't completed his revelation for all time or his work. There was a pause in God's special revelation, but there was never a pause in the plans that he was making for our salvation. Amen. God had begun his covenant of grace, his plan of salvation, long before Moses wrote the first book of the Bible. Thousands of years had elapsed between creation and between Moses' preparation of the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. Now, we live over 2,000 years since Jesus' arrival on this earth, and so we know that God has continued unfolding his plan of salvation long after he has closed the preparation of the canon, long after God had the final book of the New Testament written, we know that salvation's history has continued to unfold because it unfolds even today. So when we view the totality of history, we see a continued progression of the grand saga of creation, the fall, and redemption throughout all of history, regardless of whether God was making a special revelation at that particular moment. Again, the Protestant Bible contains 66 books. They weren't written on a schedule. They were written when God designated that they should be written, but they were prepared during relatively short periods as it pertains to the whole history of creation and the whole history of mankind. But the fact that we do possess that complete revelation is only meaningful if we take advantage of it. That means reading the Bible regularly. That means listening to programs like Anchored by Truth to help amplify our understanding about the times and events that were contained in the Bible. And it means spending some time in meditation and prayer to absorb into our lives and thinking the wisdom that can only come from an Almighty God. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal Sea's offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers, and it is a prayer for the restoration of the worship of the one true God. Prayer for Restoration of the Worship of the One True God Lord of Destiny, 
God of holiness. You ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid. You are blameless in all your acts and commands, and therefore what you ordain must come to pass. Who among men can resist your will? What you sovereignly declare will happen. We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God and not in lesser beings. Lord, you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation. We have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion. We cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof. We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in his holy name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.